Good morning, Veritas. We are studying through the book of Hebrews this morning. And so if you have a Bible, you can open it or turn it on there to Hebrews chapter 9. And we're going to look at the last five verses, the summary of this, this great chapter on the sacrifice of Jesus. The verses will be on the screen if you'd like to follow along there as well. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with hands, only a model of the true one, but into heaven itself, so that he might now appear in the presence of God for us. He did not do this to offer himself many times, as the high priest enters the sanctuary yearly with the blood of another. Otherwise, he would have had to suffer many times since the foundation of the world. But now he has appeared one time at the end of the ages for the removal of sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for people to die once and after this judgment, so also Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. In Hebrews chapter 9, we see this repeated word or phrase over and over again. Hebrews 9, 12, it says, he entered the holy place once for all time. Again, in verse 26, now he has appeared one time. Again, in verse 28, the conclusion, having been offered once to bear the sins of many. Here's what we're going to learn in this chapter. Hebrews 9 is all about the seriousness of sin, but the sufficiency of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. In John 19.30, we hear maybe the last word, or at least some of the last words, that Jesus spoke on the cross. And it's this word, tetelestai. Tetelestai is the is a Greek word that uh, accountants would use when someone was paying off a debt, they would stamp tetelestai on it. Uh, it. It would mean the debt has been paid in full. The debt has been paid in full. Tetelestai, it is finished. So if you're taking notes this morning, we actually have a picture. Uh, the sermon notes are pictures this morning. So uh, if, you, if you like pictures, stick pictures. Um, I handed these stick pictures to Izzy and she made them beautiful. And so you can take notes with some pictures. Um, you're going to need to leave. We'll use the whole screen there. Uh, but it starts with the cross. It is finished. Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with hands. Only a model of the true one, it says in verse 24. But into heaven itself so that he might now appear in the presence of God for us. Jesus Christ right now is appearing in the presence of God for you. As you worship, Jesus is saying your name this morning. Isn't that beautiful? And it says, he did not do this to offer himself many times. So Calvary, where Jesus was crucified, that happened one time. And he says, as you know, it's not like where the high priest enters the sanctuary yearly with the blood of another. In this chapter, we see this contrast. We see this contrast between the, 
the present reality of the sacrifice of Jesus, and he's sort of looking back at the Old Testament. And so the chapter begins with this description of, of the Ark of the Covenant, this where it's kept in the Holy of Holies, the tabernacle that we talked about last week. And in verse 5, it says, it is not possible to speak about these things in detail right now. I take that as permission to not go into detail uh, about all the priestly garments and about the, the tabernacle. Some of you guys are really wanting me to get into that stuff because there's so much rich symbolism and you want me to talk about the Passover and how it symbolizes communion and all those things. Well, the writer of Hebrews says, uh, not right now. So, not right now, uh, but we're going to keep it at, at the big picture to see his main point. He says in verse 9, the old covenant, the Old Testament, it's a symbol. The tabernacle, holy of holies, ark of the covenant. He says, he calls it in verse 9, 24, a model, or in chapter 8, verse 5, a copy or a shadow. So here's the second part of the picture on the left you want to draw. It's, it's a shadow of the cross, and under the shadow of the cross in the old covenant, before Jesus it was a foreshadowing. It was a picture of what to come. And what you need to know about back then, it was repeated. He's saying it was, it was yearly for the high priest, but even for all the Jewish nation, they would come often, daily, weekly, with sacrifices. And that's what characterized the old covenant. I want to invite you into the challenge of Hebrews 9, that it brought for the listeners of the day back in the first century. Because the writer is saying, hey, hey, first century Jewish Christians, you don't need to sacrifice anymore. Imagine how hard that would be. Every day of your life was connected to these deeply rooted, meaningful traditions. If you would have a baby, remember what Mary did when Jesus was born. She brought a sacrifice. And when you had a baby, you could offer a burnt offering of some kind. If, if you're really rich, you brought an ox. If you couldn't afford an ox, you brought a sheep. If you were really poor, you brought a dove, maybe a couple doves. Mary brought a couple of doves. She was so dirt poor. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, you guys don't need to do that anymore. Don't need to do it. Imagine the first year of not going to Jerusalem for Passover. This holiday that is still celebrated today. Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, or the Feast of Tabernacles, or the Passover meal. Imagine the writer saying, you don't need to do any of that anymore. Like all of a sudden, Thanksgiving, Christmas, Halloween, all those great American traditions just get taken away, right? And I'm joking about Halloween. Uh, anyway, for those of you, uh, anyway, yes. But just imagine those things being taken away and how your life would be disrupted. Um, when I was in uh, visit Muslim cultures, like when I was in Morocco, um, the Islam tradition is, it's, it's a part of every aspect of life. 
Um, when you're full, you say hamdala, which means praise be to Allah, like I'm full. <laughs> it's just, it's in all of your words, it's in your traditions, it's everything. And imagine how hard it would be for these new baby Christians to all of a sudden not do that anymore. Could you imagine how hard it would be for them to believe that their sins were completely forgiven and covered by the finished sacrifice of Jesus? Is this sacrifice enough? Well, we have the same problem as then. How little we understand how completely our sins are forgiven. We were talking about this uh, in our elder meeting. Sean Callahan has jumped in. Um, he and his family, he and Kate, and, and the kids are, are moving to help uh, the church plant at Illinois State. We're super excited for them. So he's been jumping into our elder meetings. We we're discussing the passage, and he goes, he goes oh, this is hilarious, because one of my first times at Veritas, we were meeting in the hotel Mar- at the Marriott Hotel, and he goes, it was my first time ever at Veritas, and they were taking communion. And he said, I looked over at my friend, and I said, these people think all they need is Jesus. What he's saying is they take communion and they don't get it. Forgiveness can't be that easy. These people think that all you have to do is just believe and then you'll be saved. They don't understand how expensive grace is. I have to do something. Like, that can't be all there is. I have to do something. So you know what we do when we sin? Here's the next picture. This is a, I need Jesus plus a little bit of me as well. The cross can't be enough. So what we do is we do a period of penance. A period of penance. What is penance? Well, penance is self-punishment inflicted as proof that I'm sorry for my sins. Like, don't you have to prove that you're really sorry about what you've done? You can't just do something terrible and then ask Jesus to forgive you and that's enough, right? Dermody, uh, Brian Dermody, we call him coach. He said uh, when he was younger, based on how big the sin was, when you would go in for penance, You know, of course, you would go to Mass, you would take Eucharist, and that's where the bread would become the actual body of Jesus. The wine would become the actual blood of Jesus, and it was this kind of re-crucifixion, as it were, of of Jesus. And, And then the confession part would be going to the priest and saying, you know, telling him your sins, and based on how big the sins were, it'd be something like, okay, you need to do five Hail Marys and three Glory Bees or whatever. That was his world growing up, and he was just describing, um, that's what he thought it was, was like, yes, Jesus, like Jesus did 99% of the work, but you've got that 1%, and that's kind of on you. Like, you need to prove that you deserve this sacrifice. Well, Hebrews 9.25 says, Jesus did not do this to offer himself many times 
as the high priest enters the sanctuary yearly with the blood of another. Otherwise, he would have had to suffer many times since the foundation of the world. If Jesus had to be re-crucified every time I sin, like Calvary would have to happen a whole bunch of times, multiple times throughout the day. Through every hour, Jesus would have to continually go climb back on the cross. But listen, don't take my word for it. This is God's word saying, it's finished. He doesn't have to offer himself many times. Now, this is not a time for us to throw all the churches out there under the bus. This is for us. I'm saying some churches have formalized this process of penance. But guess what? I think that we do the same thing. We do the same thing, if we're honest. What does that look like for us, this period of penance? Have any of you done this? I need to get right with God before I get baptized. I need to have a period of sobriety before I get in that tub. I need to have a period of me not sinning because I want to be worthy of the baptism. Or maybe when you sin, do any of you withdraw from people? Like, how could I ever show my face around there after what I did? Or maybe we do like Bible reading penance. Like, all right, Lord, I'm going to read my Bible now every day. I'm going to I'm going to atone for this sin. I'm going to prove that I'm serious about this. Or we just walk around with this feeling that we can't be joyful. You shouldn't be worshiping right now. You shouldn't be laughing. You shouldn't be joyful this morning in worship because you're bad. You know what you did last night. How could you lift your hands in worship after the week that you had? We feel like we need to do penance. Veritas, I think that maybe we haven't formalized penance, but our version of that is we do penitentiary. I got to spend some time in the pen. Penitentiary, that place where they put people to feel bad for what they did. Penitentiary comes from that word penitent, which means to feel sorrow. It's that place you're sent away because you were bad and you need to stay there for a long time for what you did. I think that we do that. The word repent also comes from that word penance. Re just means to do it again. The penitent thing, the the sorrow thing. Here's the thing. Is there something wrong with repentance? No. You should repent when you sin. You should feel sorrow over your sin. You should grieve over your sin. But here's the point. You make a beeline, straight line, right to the cross. You don't need a period of atoning for your sin before you get to the cross. Remember, Jesus came and he restored Peter, who had just denied him three times, And he restored him, Peter, feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. 
So this way of thinking is that the gift is so expensive, it's not enough to receive it, you just have, you have to help pay for it. I want you to think of the ridiculousness of this for a minute. Imagine this, imagine that your kid is heading off to college, the time has come, you've raised them, you've invested, how much, I, how much time, how much money. I remember there was an article saying like, by the time a kid graduates, you've spent literally like hundreds of thousands of dollars on them. Think about your time. And your kid is heading off to college and as they're getting in the car, about to leave, they're like, oh wait, hey mom, I just wanna give you something. And they, they, come, they come running toward you and they pull out their wallet and they, they hand you this $5 bill. And you're like, oh, what, what's this for? And like, oh, I just wanted to pay you back for all that you've done for me. <laughs> like, I don't, I, I don't really want to feel bad that you had to sacrifice so much. So here's five bucks. I really don't want to continue to be in debt to you. So here's five bucks. Thanks for all you've done, right? What an insult to the sacrifice of parenting that actually cheapens the sacrifice. It shows that you think so little of what they did that $5 would even matter to them. So here's what I want to say. Stop doing penance. Jesus doesn't want your $5. It diminishes the cross of Christ and it removes you from the path of grace. It is finished. It is enough. All that's left is to receive it as the free gift that it truly is. That's grace. Charis, the Greek word gift. When I survey the wondrous cross, the greatest hymn of all time, the line says, were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. It's saying, even if I had, not five bucks, but if I had the whole universe to bring to God as a payback for what he'd done, he says, that would be a sacrifice far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. That's what grace does. He goes on in verse 13, for if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a young cow sprinkling those who are defiled sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse our consciences from dead works so that we can serve the living God. This is such an important part of this scripture here. He talks about the purification of the flesh. We see on the, on the left side of the screen, on the shadow, the old covenant, the purification of the flesh. This is about external observance, right? The rituals symbolized an outward cleansing. If you were unclean, you would be cleansed through the sacrifices, but look at the reality of the cross under it is finished. Verse 14, how much more will the blood of Christ cleanse our consciences? This, under 
grace under the cross, it's not external observance, it's internal cleansing. The blood of Jesus cleanses your conscience in your inner voice, that voice that speaks to yourself about what's right and what's wrong, right? And it speaks to you. And he says, you are forgiven. Your inner voice changes when you become a Christian. Before Jesus, your conscience is crying out guilty, condemned, worthy of judgment. And now in Christ, your conscience is cleansed. Your inner voice changes. It's forgiven, cleansed, not guilty. Now, at this point in the sermon, I want to offer an objection. I don't know about you, but I have a little bit of a problem with this so far. It seems like Hebrews 9 is minimizing sin. It seems like Hebrews 9 is saying sin is not that big of a deal because you can just be forgiven, so just do whatever you want, right? Do you notice all the blood in Hebrews 9? There's lots of blood in here. Verse 22, it says, according to the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Why? Why blood? That's so brutal. Sounds, sounds like to me, the Bible says the wages of sin is death. Remember, if you eat this from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. And so the, the penalty for sin is death. This word atonement, do you know what this word atonement means? Um, a more technical word, um, if you want to impress all your friends, is propitiation. What does this word atonement or propitiation mean? Here's what it means. A crime was committed and somebody needs to pay. We get this, right? Reparation for wrongdoing. Make things right. That's what atonement is. The judge doesn't look at you if you're on death row. You're standing before the judge and he says, what do you have to say for yourself? And you say, I'm sorry. What I did was terrible. Will you forgive me? And the judge says, okay, I love you so much. You're forgiven. Go on your way. Meanwhile, the family that's been impacted by your crime is sitting there like, what? You call that justice? And you say, the judge says, oh, actually, that's my, that's my son. That's my daughter. I really love them so much. And they're like, I don't care. What about the crime that was committed against us? You're just going to sweep that under the rug, throw the gavel down and say, not guilty? Where did the sin go? What about the reparations? What about how that impacted our lives? In the gospel, Jesus doesn't sweep the sins of the world under the rug because he loves us. 
No. He absorbed in his body your sin. And he shed his blood to pay the price for the sin. If you only have a God of love and not a God of justice, you don't have atonement for sin. If you only have a God of justice and anger and wrath and you don't have love and a sacrifice, you don't have atonement. Do we actually believe that Jesus stands in the presence of God and declares our forgiveness? I think that we walk on the right side in a posture of guilt. I think we struggle with this. What is your posture? Your posture is the position in which you hold your body. Maybe like this. Maybe like this. That's your posture. Maybe like this. We're all trying to have good posture, right? Our souls have a posture. And I think part of our problem is our souls are in a posture of guilt. And you know why we walk like this? We walk like this because we don't believe that our sins are forgiven. We walk like this because we think that God is up there in heaven shaking his head like, after all I've done for you, really? Just God is shaking his head. He's always disappointed. You're never doing enough. And so you walk in a posture of guilt. And that inner voice is telling you how much you're falling short. How after all these years, you're still going to struggle with this sin. So should Christians ever feel guilty? Yes, of course. Guilt is to the body or guilt is to our soul what physical pain is to our body. It's good that you feel physical pain. It's good that you want to avoid sin. It's good that you feel guilty when you sin against God. But here's the thing. We don't walk in this posture of guilty, guilty, guilty. We can lift our heads and remember that we are forgiven, forgiven, forgiven. Okay, verse 6. It says, with these things prepared like this, the priests enter the first room repeatedly, performing their ministry, but the high priest alone enters the second room. He does that only once a year. Okay, going back to this shadow on the left side of the screen, we've got priestly mediators. Priestly mediators. And now look at how The new covenant under the cross is different, verse 14. So how much more now will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse our consciences from dead works, what? So that what? So that we can, what? So that we can serve the living God. So that we can serve. I love this. The the word for serve is latruo. And you're like, that means nothing to me. Oh, it does. Because have any of you guys done liturgy before? Liturgy, that's from this word, latruo. Liturgy, latruo, it's 
describing the work of the priests, what they would do when they would go in and offer the sacrifices repeatedly. And what he's saying is, that's what we do now. We do liturgy now. But it's different from the priests. It's our whole life is liturgy. It's a serving God so that we can serve the living God. He's saying to these writers, remember what the priest did? Now that's your job, Christian. It's your job to serve the living God. So now we go from priestly mediators to under the cross. We're just ordinary ministers. Ordinary ministers. What Hebrews is telling us is that none of us are mediators. You don't need me to forgive your sins. Like you don't need to find a time this week to come and confess all your sins to me to get forgiven. That's not how the new covenant works. None of us are mediators, but all of us are ministers. That's life under the cross. Cross. Someone comes to you, hey, who is that minister at Veritas again? You say, which one? We have like thousands of them, literally. Who's the minister of Veritas? I don't know. Like, how many of you in this room are followers of Jesus? You're the minister at Veritas. That's how we think under the new covenant, this kingdom of priests to serve our God If you know Jesus, you are a minister. The finished work of Jesus makes you qualified as a minister of the new covenant. I don't know if we really believe this. So over here, we try to add to this a little bit. This is the ministry professionals. You don't understand grace. If you think that all the Christian, like the really important Christian stuff is just for the paid professionals. Like only I can preach the Bible. You know, some of you guys have been coming to Veritas for a while and, you know, you were a part of a tradition where maybe only the priest or the pastor or the minister could do certain things. And you see like people up here serving communion or setting it out or getting it ready, or you see like random people baptizing people, and you're like, do they just let any schmo get in that tub and baptize? Oh, totally. We totally do. Because of this verse. He's cleansed our consciences from dead works so that now we can all serve the living God. Only the minister can visit the sick people in the hospital. No, You could totally do that. Remember the story I told last week with Tracy? That could be you. Those stories don't just happen to those of us who, it's our vocation, right? This is freeing for us. We are a whole kingdom of priests to serve our God. Verse 27, he lands here and he says, and just as it is appointed for people to die once and after this judgment, so also Christ, again, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, He will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. In the shadow, in the Old Testament, they were waiting for Messiah. All the rituals, traditions, they were just shadows pointing 
to the coming Messiah, to the Savior. But now under the cross, we are not waiting for the Messiah. We live in thankful assurance. Thankful assurance. It's not shaky ground we stand on. We, and we don't tremble and fear that things are getting bad in this world and maybe the end is coming. That doesn't get our heart rate up in fear. It gets our heart rate up in excitement. I can't wait for what's about to unfold because it means Jesus is closer today than he was yesterday to coming back. We can wait in bold expectation and actual thankfulness, right? Because we look back at communion. But I want us to think about this, what we're about to do for a minute here, because it says, thankful assurance. This word, Eucharist. You guys have heard this word, Eucharist, to refer to communion. We, in our tradition, we don't call it Eucharist, uh, there's nothing wrong with calling it Eucharist, uh, depending on what you mean by that word, but Eucharist is just the Greek word for thankful, and it comes from Mark chapter 14, verse 22. As they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed it, and broke it, gave it to them, and said, take it, this is my body. Then he took the cup, and after giving what? After giving Eucharist... (laughs) After giving thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank from it. And he said, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I tell you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Communion is giving thanks for the finished work of Jesus. But what does Jesus say? I won't drink of it again Until that day, this is a joyful anticipation when we will feast with Jesus Christ and he will raise a glass, welcoming us into eternity. It is finished. Yes, we look back and thank God that it is finished. But we also look ahead with anticipation and full assurance that we don't have to fear death. We don't have to fear judgment to come. We can wait joyfully, thankfully for him to bring salvation, verse 28. So communion that we are about to do, it's not a re-sacrificing of Jesus. Hebrews 9 clearly contradicts that. It's not a re-sacrificing, it's a remembering. And it's an anticipation. The sacrifice is sufficient. So we don't need to wait over here on the right with fearful uncertainty. If you, by your own penance and good works, are trying to add to the finished work of Jesus, how will you know if you've ever done enough? How will you know? If it's up to Jesus plus you, how will you ever know if you've done enough good works? Whenever I'm involved, there's always going to be fear because I fail every time. People say, trust yourself. 
That's the worst possible thing you could do. If I'm looking at myself, how often am I a poor husband? How often do I consistently not do what I say I'm going to do? How often do I fail or act in pride? It is finished. If you really believed it is finished this morning, that your sins were completely paid for, that the sacrifice of Jesus is sufficient, you wouldn't try to prove it with a period of penance. You would run quickly to the cross. You wouldn't sulk in a posture of guilt. You would repent and walk in freedom and joy. You wouldn't leave it for the paid professionals. You'd let Jesus use you as his ordinary minister. And you wouldn't cower in fearful uncertainty of the future. You'd thankfully anticipate the day you will see Jesus. Before we take communion, and I just invite the worship team to come on up and and lead us out in a time of communion, there's one more guy I want to introduce you to on the far right. This guy, this guy right here next to the cross, this is expensive grace guy. Uh, Grace is so expensive, surely I need to throw down my $5 on it. This person on the right is cheap grace guy. Cheap grace person has no intention of repenting of sin. It's like the gospel is a good life insurance plan. Uh, I just know that Jesus will forgive me no matter what I do. So I'll come to communion. I have no intention of repenting of sin. I have no intention of turning away from sin. I'm just going to do grace. And it's cheap grace. That also is an error. And that's coming soon in chapters 10. 11, 12, 13. So we'll keep that for another time. But we encourage you to come to the table and do this in remembrance of the finished and final once and for all sacrifice of Jesus. It's a remembering that we are forgiven and it's an assurance and an anticipation that he's coming back. Let's pray. We just invite you to to come when you're ready, not to come in fear. Not to wait in a period of penance, but to come. Confess your sin, the blood of Christ, it was it cost him his life. Sin is a big deal. But the sacrifice is enough, so come do this in remembrance of him.